0: Love, talk Radio. This is Creativity and Play. I'm Steve Dahlberg. And I'm Mary Alice Long. You can find us online at creativityandplay.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Creativity Play, and download archived editions on iTunes. Our guest today on Creativity and Play is Hilary Austin, author of Artistry Unleashed, a guide to pursuing great performance in work and life. She is also an adjunct professor at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. Hilary will be leading a workshop on Artistry Unleashed, Creativity and Cognition, and is part of the closing innovation keynote with IBM's Nicholas D'Onofrio and David Yan and me at the Advancing Creative Thinking. Imagination to Innovation Conference in Ridgefield, Connecticut, this Saturday, April 28th. We are showcasing several conference presenters in Creativity and Play interviews, including IBM's David Yon, on Thursday, plus our previous interviewees, Irish poet Anne O'Reilly, artist and activist Lily Yeh, play expert Joan Almond, and New York Times tech columnist David Pogue will all be part of the conference as well. Hillary Austin, welcome to Creativity and Play.
1: Thank you very much. Happy to be here
0: thank you well your Your big topic on artistry seems a great place to begin and and the your book on that topic as well. Can you say a little bit about what what you mean by that word and and how it plays into people's creative lives and and purposeful work?
1: Well, yes, I'd be happy to. I picked artistry because my own background um as a professional was as an organizational consultant worked a lot with companies on building strategy and leadership teams and solving difficult problems, but prior to that, I was an artist. I went to design school as an undergraduate, and I often thought that I was more helpful to people using what I learned as an artist, as a painter, than I was actually what I I knew about business, and I think it was because, as I started to study, it's because artists have a, a notion that there can be... Uh, that creativity can and excellence can coexist in a way that um, is not traditionally taught in schools. And and so it was a source for me to go explore how creative excellence could unfold in a practice, and, and then I built on that and went out into other disciplines. So it's intended to be an interdisciplinary notion, not bringing together um, expertise, and I call it mastery, and then originality in practice.
0: And related to that, you talk about the things that happen at the edge and what does that mean in terms, well, of, that, in know, terms we have, of thinking we all, about our artistry?
1: Yes, we all have what we're good at, which is what we're masterful at, but it's the moment that you engage a problem where it has uncertainty in its solution or in its execution, then you're having to move past what you're comfortable doing. And we're not particularly well educated for that, you know, we're much more formally educated to be able to predict the correct answer and pursue it. And um, and we're finding more and more lately as, as a, more information comes out on the brain and how it works that our brain's not particularly good at venturing into uncertainty. It's quite frightening for us physiologically. And so we don't have a huge mental availability and capacity for exploring these things that are, you know, surprising and, and ambiguous and that we actually need to now as we learn this, put a lot more of our energy into getting skillful in the areas where we're, you know, venturing past what we we know is confidence.
2: So, Hillary, why is artistry for everyone?
1: Well, I think we all... Yeah. My hope is that we don't see it anymore as a rarefied activity. You know, we have kind of day-to-day lives and then artists are sitting off in their studios being kind of kooky and isolated and everybody in everything they do if they're making an effort to be creative is is trying to take what they know and advance it a little bit farther, whether it's in small activities. I mean, every parent knows that, right? They can't predict what their kids are going to do on a day-to-day basis. And the, the building of knowledge in response to new experience is really what I hope you know people take away from this Look is how to do that, how to advance when you face something new, not rely only on what you've done well in the past. And I think that's something people do every day and everything that they do to a larger or greater capacity, depending on how
2: they design their lives. So it's better to walk towards, in a sense, what you don't know rather than everything you do know.
1: Well, certainly when there's, you know, when there's a possibility for different opinions. I think I'm not also, which I think sometimes creative people get um, a bad rap because we want to make everything exciting and everything different. And if something's working well, I'm not one of those people that says, let's blow it all up and, you know, try everything new. But when 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 you look around you and you say, well, there's a huge variance of opinion, there's different people have strong views about how, how you know, this thing that we're we're thinking about should go in the world that's a time to question, I think, and to explore and to be hospitable to more views, more ways of thinking and more skill sets than your own and um you know so when it's when it's needed, I think we all need to be able to step up to that and again, as I said, we don't get a lot of practice doing that in school, so it's it's often a new experience for people when they get out in the world, that they have to advance
0: and explore. You've uh, talked about, again, some of the ideas on artistry uh, from your book, which is partly what your workshop will be based on here in Connecticut on Saturday. And part of your background has also been co-founding the Brain Integration Center. So I think your workshop is integrating some of the, the brain and cognition science and ideas as well. So you've sort of put the artistry and brain and cognition piece um, in the workshop. And then later in the day, um, you're part of this closing uh, session on innovation um, with a couple of of people from IBM and yeah, and sure. as you mentioned briefly, a lot of your work has also been in the corporate realm in the workplace setting. So, first of all, can you say a little bit about what you're doing in those in those two sessions and and sort of again picking up on this integration of of your work sort of across these very broad topics and and what you're doing in them currently as well?
1: I'd be happy to. Or, are The notion of integration um, has been a theme, you know, we're looking, when we first started to study the brain, and I mean, you know, we most broadly, it started, it was rooted in two notions, really, one that we had to figure out how the brain worked so we could replicate an expert system. And so that's where cognition started its study. And so there was work of that going on, and then there's also work on some of the creative, mystical, you know, where the muse, the sort more open-ended, unexplainable creative parts of people, and, and the effort in the past, you know, 10 years is to really connect those two ideas to what we're learning about the physiology of the brain, and, and the, that integration... I mean there's different views on integration. I have to be honest and say, even though I use the word integration, I think it's a much harder thing to do than we imagine that the way the reason that I spend a lot of time helping organizations with innovation is that um when you design an organization to innovate, all the things that allow you to do that are all the same things that make um being efficient and effective more difficult. And so organizations face uh a real tension between how they design themselves and execute to be efficient and scale and and grow and at the same time innovate, be open to change. And it's the same for people, but that those interactions are quite demanding and achieving both of them simultaneously is quite demanding. And so both of my, my, my session where I give my presentation at the workshop will be about how, how that dynamic unfolds and how we can prepare for it. So we have moments of integration, and um, and I'm hoping that our, our session at the end is a creative one where the three of us, which will help us with you, is to try to build something of it, our different ideas into something new. I hope that's a very creative conversation where we take our different points of view on on creativity and human performance and and have an interesting conversation about how we can bring those ideas together. But it's a challenge for people to integrate ideas, and, and integration we think of as a thing that we can achieve. But I, in my work, defining it more that it's a phase that you go through. And then as you, as an organization moves through time, their old solutions have to be let go, and they have to find a new one. And then, and then all of a sudden, they're innovating while at the same time trying to maintain uh, an, an efficient organization. And that's an ongoing challenge that doesn't ever get, you know, it's never finished. As much as we'd like to say, oh, we have a great strategy and now we can just go forward, it never quite ends for organizations the way they wish. Wish sometimes, I bet that it would. You know, they want to come to a clarity that they can just execute forever, and that's not not what we find over time. Is that, did I respond to your? Well, you asked me a lot of questions there altogether. Yes,
0: right. So <laughs> trying to integrate too much all at once. Let's no, have be a right.
1: on I, this I, topic. No, I understand.
0: So. Well, yeah, I, have of, I was just going to pick up on what we were talking about before we uh, went on the air here of uh, the fact that Hillary lives on an organic farm. And as you were just describing this this continuous process of integration and innovation, it, it made me think about about that organic farm because it sounded like you were describing a very organic process. And one, you know, that, like you said, we think might end or should stop or come to some fruition, but really is this continuous, constantly changing um, endeavor. Again, we're, we're talking about organizations or ourselves. And is, is that a, a blatant connection that you make in, in your life on the organic farm or just... Uh, well that's a, a place PCV. that's a
1: nurturing that's a nurturing place for me you know that that's not a professional effort on my part. We have some yeah. work and we have uh people growing food there and that's just more a place I go to restore myself after I venture out into the world because it's stressful. I wish I could say creativity was you know just a lot of fun but it's um I just finished an article on i think I sent you the article on on um, on growth and we we have to keep growing on the one hand in organizations as people. You know, we, we want to keep growing. At the same time, you know, to be able to do that, we have to, to innovate and let things go, and that's stressful for people. So um, my organic farm and the property there is where we, we have a, you know, it's a restorative environment. We go to
2: get charged up and, and um, just enjoy the landscape. Well, I have a strong belief that, Play can be in every aspect of our yeah, life, including our education right. and businesses. And so I can just see you in your in the kitchen cooking and bringing um, playfulness into that arena. But also I think, you know, we use a lot of words on our show and in our conversation here today, integration and right. business and heaviness in a sense, and you just mentioned stress, and I think play is such a wonderful way to decrease stress if you bring that playful attitude into what you do. So I wonder what you have to say about play and your own playful attitude and how that can be part no, of No, ab-
1: absolutely, and I think that's the, that's the part about innovation that we have to really shelter from the, you know, pressure to perform, um, and And in in my book, I in an effort to expand our thinking past, so the serious part of making, you know, making money and building organizations, I had a most wonderful time. I got to, I studied all the different things that I include in the book. Actually, spent four or five years working with each of the people in the book. I didn't want to write a book as a journalist. I wanted to go have the experiences of the people that I was going to describe. And so I actually studied with the chef and went to cooking school. And I worked with a cowboy and uh, for four or five years and rode with him and worked on his ranch. And then I worked with a strategist. And I and for me, I have to say, that was all play. That was totally fun. The research process was revealing and involved and, and very exciting. And I, I have to say, a lot of my friends who – finished their PhDs and did their research, didn't nearly have as much fun as I did doing it. (laughs) (laughs) Good for you. So I was very, yeah, I said, this is a whole life experience, so I'm going to go enjoy it. And I think the play and the pleasure, at least in my theory, it comes from the involvement in what you're doing and the pleasure of exploring a medium, which is another reason that I call it artistry, is because I think of activity as set in a medium that has textures and flavors and smells and events that are, involving and engaging, and, and a pleasure to be, you know, to experience. And that's what motivates people to do things, I I believe, deeply, is their is experience and the joy they have from direct experience of doing something. And we can all get very mental, and dissertations and organizational strategies can be very mental, but it's the day-to-day engagement that I want to restore to people's lives, so that they just take great pleasure in doing what they're doing. And so I think of things as a medium, whether they're an organization or a, doing a painting or making food. That those are a, a medium, as as you would use um, paint or chalk or a, mu- a musical instrument. So I think that's where you, and I probably overlap is the the part of engagement and saturation and an experience that's
2: really joyful for people. For sure. So, who yeah. are some of the people that you inspire your playful research and work?
1: Um, people in the book or people in the
2: world? Any, any, and all. Any and all. Well, we you know. I know that on your website you have you name a few people that <laughs> inspire you in different areas of well, education, you know, and I, business.
1: I, yeah, I search for people to to do research with and to learn from who, um, you know, I'm not too interested in famous people per se. That's not my interest because I think they're, they're the great, sometimes they're fantastic people and then other times it's a compromise they've made t- to create notoriety. I go look for people who are in their industry. Someone would say, oh, that's the chef's chef or that's the researcher's research. It's the person that the community values, um, the actual practice practitioner community values more than the public. So I go and say, like I was looking for my horseman. I said, you know, who's the person that when you have problems you go ask? So that's the um, I look for those people. So they aren't always famous people, for sure. But I think right now I've had I I um, I've gotten very interested in all these cognitive uh, scientists, and I'm sure he's well known to most people. But I just been, totally have a crush on David Eagleman at the moment. Because he has that wonderful book *Incognito*, and he was in a, a TED conference where he spoke in Houston, where he talks about the the courage to engage in uncertainty and the pleasure that comes from, you know, engaging in the world. And he's one of my favorite. Since we're talking about cognition, he's currently one of my favorite cognitive scientists and speakers.
2: But how about you? <laughs> How about me, I'm like I'm like you. I um I often go to the, unfamous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and the ones that also just as you're talking and you know ask the question about play, I hear I heard this huge energy come up, and that's I can see you know probably one of your core passions is is in that I'm sure because I could hear the passion, and for me that's true too. I love to be surrounded around people that. Love to play and find out and explore through different avenues, and so yeah. those are the kind of people that inspire me, for sure. Well, it
1: has to be. You know, you look you look at people's lives, and you read the story of some of these people's lives. I, you know, I try to put some of that in the book, and and as we said earlier, you know, it takes a lot of work and effort, and they wouldn't do it if it wasn't fun for them. You know, they they're they're fascinated by something, and and so that has it has led them through their life and through. Through the process of experimenting and making mistakes, and uh, I just found with everyone that I studied, um, making mistakes and having failures was not this great tragic drama that it seems to be. Um, in in sort of the average community, they went, well, that's you know, well, well, one one less thing to try. It didn't wasn't as daunting, and it was just part of the experimentation and the exploration. And I think that's something where we associate that playfulness with with kids, where they're not so fussed by. Making a mistake, and they'll try something a hundred times. And each failure is not a dramatic setback; it's just one piece of of how they're learning to understand what's going on around them. And th- that was a, something else that attracted me to the people that I studied. That as they worked their way through a problem, it was you know just accumulating more to know about their subject or their their medium, and then they could they could travel on without it being a great a great. Like I say, setback or disappointment that they failed. In a particular instance, I have in the book this, the story of of Marconi and the wireless communication, and that was an epic drama. lasted over forty years before they figured that out. And you know, you just keep at it, and you love you keep at it because, as you say, you have a, a passion for doing something. It's not yeah, yeah. not just just to get paid for doing it, but that there's a real love of of the pursuit of the idea.
0: Mm-hmm. And sort of, sort of what you're talking about right now is sort of the other half of uh, play, perhaps the the work part, which has come up in several of our interviews and in other conversations about you know how easy it is to forget sometimes the work part of creativity and 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 doing what we love. And you know, I think what you're describing right now is really this combination again of play and work in being able to yeah, accomplish and yeah, create that's something all, new. Yeah.
1: The best of all possible worlds the divide, I guess, would would dissolve, you know, because the the pleasure and the work are, become one one you know one and part of, part of the same the same effort. And as as adults, we kind of, as you say, get too weighted down in the the working part of it. And kids are just playing. And but you if we want to create something and actually produce a result, you know, then you have to move back and forth between the fun of fiddling around and then the effort of getting something made.
0: Which so you're teaching as, as, go ahead, uh, ahead. this is to pick up on, on again these ideas that you're talking about and and looking at the what you teach at the Rotman school, um which I presume is typically people in business programs are are in your courses and um for people who don't know the Rotman school at all there's certainly some other nice connections to the topics we're talking about through the the work of Roger Martin around. Yeah. Um, design and integrative thinking and Richard Florida's yeah. work around creative communities who we talked yep. to early in our series quite quite some time ago. Um, so first of all being in a place like that with lots of people thinking about these topics from I guess a lot of different directions um, I assume feeds into sort of your ongoing curiosity and when you get into your own classroom and, and classes what's happening in there relative to sort of all these ideas we've just been talking about with your yes. work, you know,
1: what do you do with that audience? Well, you know, Roger Martin and I have been friends for about twenty years, and when he went back to the University of Toronto, um, he went back there to redesign um, management education and business education. He wanted to bring back, um, you know, what we might talk. He would not call it play because he had a, a different sort of orientation and language, but the ability to be creative and create new ideas. Back into business school, he saw it as a place that was getting driven too much by uh you know, linear regressions and and statistics and numbers and numeric thinking and so when he went back there, he invited me to come help him build that curriculum and so there my effort there has been uh in the early years to help him design that curriculum and then um to try to help him move it even further out into organizations. So when I'm back there, I do both executive education, and I teach less now than I used to in the um, MBA program, but a lot of it um, more in the executive education. And and what he's calling integrated thinking is what he he describes as the ability to hold in your mind two opposing ideas, and rather than pick one or the other, make a compromise, to be able to create some new alternative that has good aspects of both. And he spent a lot of years studying um, creative business people who accomplished that and, then, and redefined their business or, or redefined their, their customers, recreated an industry by being able to let go of an old way of thinking and not make a compromise but, but create a new way of being in the world and business. And so our effort in there has been to to help people acquire those capabilities. And both of us have spent the past, you know, ten years trying to say what are the actual capabilities and what would someone need to learn to to be able to implement that kind of thinking in action so that they have a good chance of, of pulling it off. And it's more than just a set of ideas, you have to have skills and ideas and a whole orientation toward, if mean, I I call a personal knowledge system, that you have to have a different way of building knowledge than what we're you know typically allowed to do in school. It has to be more fluid. It has to be more playful in the sense that it can be revised and changed. It Has to be less fixed. And um, and so that's that's our effort there is to reinvent how knowledge is developed and how people implement what they know once they go out and do something out of school and in the real world where they they might get their, you know, toe stubbed or their nose bruised. They've got to get up and, and reinvent something
2: to make it better. Uh, when we interviewed Sir Ken Robinson, who I noticed. One of my mentioned. favorite people. Yes.
1: My, of my E2. Yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> we uh
2: we talked about on our second interview with him about the importance and neglect of our inner life to for creativity. Yeah. And I wonder what you might have to say about that and also how which tips you might recommend for people to harness their originality and work towards yeah great performances but in their life.
1: There's been some really wonderful
2: research that shows that um, when
1: you're trying to motivate someone to do something demanding, that uh, paying them more money is the worst thing you can do. And that I think he he and I would agree, and you probably you that people really put an effort into things. They care about things because they have an inner drive. And I think we get used to having external rewards drive our performance and our behavior because we're in those kind of environments all the time. We're being rewarded for this, rewarded for that. And, you know, I think the most important thing in everything that our research has showed us and in my experience is that people people that I studied, you know, they got up in the morning because they cared a lot about what they were doing. So I often say in my in my talks that, you know, Monet didn't get up and paint paintings every day because someone paid him to do it or told him to do it or you know, try to motivate him to do it because he cared enough to really understand art and to understand light and to understand imagery. And that's true for business leaders. It's true for everyone that I've worked with that they care enough about figuring something out to put the effort in and have the experience and, and, and you know, accomplish what you and I are call, calling, you know, a joyful life. And so that's the most important thing is that you care enough to get engaged. And I... I don't, you know, there's nobody knows where the secret of that comes from, but at least saying that's what matters to us and trying to figure that out for, you know, each one of us, figuring that out for ourselves seems to be the place to start. It certainly provides the fuel for all the rest of the journey. If you don't care a lot about it, it's, you know, as Malcolm Gladwell, it's not the level the 10,000 hours. Who wants to put in 10,000 hours doing something they don't have a great time doing or they don't care a lot about? Not me. <laughs> That has to be something that we truly have some joy in experiencing. That would be my biggest. So thing. in yeah. the
0: last 90 seconds or so, what yeah. is it that you're most focused on and giving you most joy these days?
1: Me personally, I, well, I'm I'm cooking, which I did love to do. And I'm, um, I'm working on maybe writing another book. I haven't decided. I, I spent six weeks in France in, um, an artisan business there working with people on their farm and I loved doing that and it's finding a way to connect people to what they really enjoyed doing and finding a way for that to operate in the world effectively. I'm thinking about how to redesign business models and, you know, human experience so they are more they're more complementary.
0: Which is a Great topic that I think will come up over and over again this weekend in Connecticut. So
1: I hope so. I'm really looking looking forward to coming.
0: Well, thank you so much, and uh, Hillary Austin. Thank you for being our guest today on creativity and play. Hilary is the author of Artistry Unleashed and adjunct professor at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. She's leading a workshop and part of a keynote at the Advancing Creative Thinking Conference in Ridgefield, Connecticut, on April 28th. Our theme music is Kindergarten, composed and performed by Jonathan Batiste. You can listen to this show and previous shows again and find out more information about our guests and coming shows at creativityandplay.com. And find Creativity and Play on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes. Well, Creativity and Play is a production of the International Center for Creativity and Imagination in partnership with the National Creativity Network. I'm Steve Dahlberg.
2: And I'm Mary Alice Long. Thank you so much, Hillary, for joining us today. Thank
1: you. It was delightful.